Amen. Well, beloved, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we ought to rejoice and be glad in it. At this time, Bridge Kids, all of our elementary age students, grades K through 5, are dismissed. Your teachers are standing at the back and ready for you. On last week, Pastor Dominic taught us and helped us to understand more clearly the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news that we are, that we have been saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This week, we want to look at what the gospel creates. Not individually, but holistically, corporately. The gospel is the seed of Christian community. When we are saved... We are saved into a family, a community. And this, this, beloved, is important because we live in a nation, in, in a country that, that, that conforms us to the ideal of individualism. And we, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, have a different value system. We are a family, a community, a a body, the church. And so that is what the gospel creates. It creates a body of believers called the church. And It is always timely to remind us of the importance and the value of the church. The church, she is the bride of Christ. And the problem is many Christians treat the bride like she's a prostitute. We don't value her. We don't prioritize her. We don't love her well. It it is always timely to remind us that the gospel creates the church. She whom Christ died for. That's how much Christ loves her. And we often treat her as if we could live live without her. The gospel creates a community. When was this community actually created? When was she birthed? I am convinced that we must look to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2, verse 4. I only got one verse to read for my first point. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It is at Pentecost that the church is born. Acts 2 is when the church is birthed. In Acts 2, what's happening is what I believe John the Baptist declared when he says, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with Fire. I believe what's happening here in Acts chapter 2, verse 4 specifically, is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. What then is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I define the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the work of the Holy Spirit whereby he places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit whereby he places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ. I think I'm on good ground here because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 13, he says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Baptized into one body. Question, if that's what it is, when does this happen? I am convinced that the totality of the New Testament teaching is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of salvation. <laughs> the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of salvation. Stake it, prove your claim. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Listen to it. This is crucial. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This verse makes it clear, children of God, that it is impossible to belong to Christ without the Holy Spirit. You cannot call yourself a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. In order to be saved, we need the Spirit to come and do a work in us to make us alive. Because before we can be alive to Christ, we have to realize that we were first dead in our trespasses and sins. 
And so in order for dead people to give life, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And he gives us everything we need to believe. Repentance, faith. We cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in order for a sinner to be saved, that person must be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment we become believers, which is the indwelling of the Spirit is different from the filling of the Spirit. The indwelling happens at the very moment we become a believer. The filling of the Spirit is continual throughout the Christian life. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, be under the control of the Spirit in all times of our lives. What then are the implications of this? Help me, Holy Ghost. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second work of grace. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a second blessing. It's the initial blessing. It happens simultaneously at the moment one places trust in Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something we have to pray for. Y'all talk to me this morning. Don't leave me out here by myself. I ain't saw y'all in three weeks. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a complete act of God. Any person who is a believer has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they're not a true believer. So what happens here in Acts 2, prior to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as they are transitioning from Old Covenant to New Covenant, the church is being born, they are individual believers. But once the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes them, they now are a unified body. That's called the church. And that's why we say that Pentecost is the birth of the church. That's when they are baptized into one body. So what is a church? The church can't be the church unless it is a spirit-indwelled people. That's why, that's why, I, don't y'all tell nobody, but I get beside myself when people ask us, do y'all have the Holy Ghost at the bridge? <laughs> don't, don't, don't get me started. I don't, I'm not going to tell y'all what I say in the flesh. I'm going to keep that to myself. <laughs> If we don't have the Holy Ghost, then we're not a church. And most of the times what people mean is, do you do all these charismatic 
things that, 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 that we normally think about when we talk about Pentecost and Pentecostal? Do you speak in tongues, slain in the spirit? Do you run around the church? All those other kind of things. And those things are good, but they don't necessarily mean that a church has the Holy Ghost. Because a lot of the times, some of this, this thing that we think is evidence of the Holy Ghost is just emotionalism. Because folk will come in the church on Sunday, run around, talk in tongues, and all these other things, and then they would go out and speak in a different tongue, cussing out somebody. But yet, we think that church got the Holy Ghost. They play real fast music. But there's no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. In order for the church to be the church, it has to be a spirit-indwelled body. And sometimes, yes, there will be clear evidence that that the church is full of the Holy Spirit through through what's externally shown. But but what I'm looking for is folks who who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just on Sunday morning at 10.15, but when I come find them Monday at 10.15, I still see people that look like the Holy Ghost has changed them. They think different, talk different, walk different. That's what I'm looking for, for evidence of a spirit-filled church. All right. Y'all, I'm just going to be honest. I get excited about the Holy Spirit, actually, because it was the Holy Ghost that saved me. It was the Holy Ghost that changed me. It was the Holy Ghost. Hey, hey, hey. Don't get me started on him. Hey. Woo. I love him. True. If it wasn't for the Holy Ghost, y'all wouldn't want to know me. Truth of the matter, if it wasn't for the Holy Ghost, I wouldn't want to know (laughs) y'all. If it wasn't for the Holy Ghost, I'd be scared of the things I would do, the things I would say, the things I would believe, my attitude, but the Holy Ghost came and filled me. (laughs) He changed the way I talk, changed the way I walk. But then he did the Holy Ghost does something for me. When I get with the people of God on a Sunday morning, he has a way of filling us and he shows off himself. He lets us know that he is here. Hey, 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 hey. Y'all excuse me. Y'all gave me three weeks off and I'm recharged and I'm refilled. Hey, 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 hey. Listen, I'm just starting to think about the goodness of God. Listen, I'm just glad he woke me up this morning. Started me on my way. Hey, put love, put air in my lungs. He did it for me. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm going back. <laughs> I woke up this morning and I was thinking about, I think it's Psalm 122 that says, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. That's not my key. My key is B flat. Okay, that's the birth of the church. I told you.
The church is created. What happens now? What are the habits or the practices of the local church? Go sit with your wife now. Go back and sit with your wife. <laughs> Go back to Acts chapter 2. What we're going to look at now are some of the marks or the characteristics of a gospel-centered church. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse number 42, says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Gospel-centered churches are made up of devoted people. Look, the text says, and they devoted themselves. That word devotion means to persist, to be steadfast, to persevere. There was an extreme commitment to certain activities of this gospel-centered church. The gospel so transformed this body called the church that there was a radical reorientation of their lives. Their lives were dominated by and centered around the gospel. Rewind, press play. I said their lives were centered around the gospel. Double rewind, press play again. I said their lives were centered around the gospel, which means that extracurricular activities were actually extra because their lives were centered around the gospel. Their lives were centered around the gospel. The gospel so transformed them that everything about their life was driven by and motivated by the gospel. Everything revolved around the, the gospel and how it affected their gospel commitment and their gospel devotion. It was at the very center of their lives. If the new, this new church were said to be too busy, it was because they were too busy with gospel living. What we need today is a church that is busy with the business of the gospel and not just worldly things. They were a devoted church, but they were also a doctrinal church. It says they were committed to the, the, the apostles' doctrine. That word doctrine simply means teaching. The apostles led this church by teaching the church what Christ taught them. They were committed to the teaching of the apostles. 
They were a church that was committed to what we would say is Scripture, the authoritative word of God. What are gospel-centered churches? Gospel-centered churches are word-centered churches. The, 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 the Scripture sets the agenda for the church. The scripture is the authority of the church. We do what God says to do based on scripture. It has the final say-so on what we are to believe and how we are to behave. Gospel-centered churches are word-based churches. If there's teaching, then there also must be learning. This was a learning church. That's called discipleship. Discipleship was at the forefront of the life of this new church. Discipleship was their mission. And it was an actual value of theirs. So when this church, now that this church is born, what is their value? Doctrine. Scripture. Teaching. Learning. They get excited about the preacher preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They enjoyed that kind of stuff. They didn't want just fluff. They didn't want, uh, 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 they didn't just need sermons like this next season of your life is going to be the best season of your life. They didn't want to hear that every Sunday. Matter of fact, they would have said, somebody lying, because Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. <laughs> Matter of fact, we're under persecution right now, so what you mean this best season going to be my best season? Now, my best season is when I see him face to face. Yeah, yeah, don't get me started, y'all. That, that's going to be my best season. My, my best season. Is when the weary will cease from troubling. <laughs> the wicked will cease from troubling. The weary will be at rest. That's going to be my best season. Mm, 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 mm. So they were a scripture-centered church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They knew the difference between sound doctrine and false doctrine. Not only were they a church that focused on doctrine. By the way, this is why preaching is so central in our gatherings when we gather together on Sunday morning. Because what we need more than anything is to hear from heaven. We need to hear what thus said the Lord. We've heard from one another. We've heard from the news. We've heard from Facebook and Instagram. We, we, we've heard from teachers. We, we've heard from everybody. We need to hear what thus said the Lord. Yeah, yeah. So that's why preaching is central to our gatherings at this gospel-centered church because the word is so important. What else is there in now this new church, the birth, after the birth of this church? What, what do we see 
as some of the practices of this church. They were also a church that was full of fellowship. Fellowship. Is that my next point? Yes. That word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, it's a word that means common, communal, to share, to contribute, to have communion. This new church was committed to community. But oftentimes when we think of fellowship in the church, we think of potluck meals. But fellowship in scripture is much deeper than just potluck meals. Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 44. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The gospel so transformed the lives of this new church that they were radically, extravagantly generous. They were sacrificially generous. You do understand that the sacrifice means it cost them something. Look, look what they were doing. They were selling their property and their possessions not to get out of debt, but for the sake of one another. <laughs> this is radical. Y'all, they put their house on the market for the church. Not necessarily the institution, but for other believers. They sold land so that they could be generous to the church. They had garage sales and estate sales for the church. These people were transformed by the gospel. This was not a materialistic group of people. They were selfless. This is what fellowship looked like in the early church. They were more committed to the community than they were themselves. They understood and realized that they were part of a body. I wonder sometimes if we forget that we are part of a body. Being a body means that individually we do what's best for the community. I need y'all shouting like y'all were early on right here. <laughs> that means we make decisions with the community involved. How does this affect the community? How will this help me to be more generous? Now, does this mean we're all supposed to start selling our possessions and property and bringing it to the church? I don't think that's the point of this text. The point is to show the extent of their devotion because of the gospel. The gospel radically changed the way they lived, the way they thought, the way they treated others. Now, 
We now live in this age where the talk is all about socialism. Somebody's wondering if that's what I'm after. No, I'm after the gospel. I'm after gospel living. Now, I do want you to, I want to make something very clear. I don't think uh, this is versus talking about socialism for a couple of reasons, for three reasons, actually. First, the generosity of this new community was not government-driven, it was gospel-driven. The church ought not need the government to tell us to be generous to one another. The gospel ought to do that. Ooh, this benevolence fund finna look real good, all these amens I'm getting. Y'all crazy. <laughs> but I'm serious. <laughs> Secondly, this is not socialism because the giving of their resources was not mandatory. It was voluntary. Mm -hmm. And third, there is no evidence that everyone in this new community were equal in their resources. So their fellowship, not only did they give of their assets and their possessions, but their fellowship was also defined by living life together. Mm. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, and watch this, and breaking bread where? In their homes. Notice they went to temple together, they gathered together, and then they went into each other's houses and ate together. And the text says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now this is convicting because I'm like, Lord, I don't want nobody in my house today. Mm -mm, not today. I, I need my nap. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Glad, mm-mm. This new church this new church valued community. They were devoted to community. Notice for them that living life together was not just a one point, one and a half or two hour Sunday morning event. It was a normal rhythm of their daily lives. Text says that they did this day by day. Every day, somebody, they was at somebody's house. <laughs> Beloved, the enemy of community is individualism. And what I mean by individualism is the belief that your personal needs are more important than the needs of the community. Individualism values independence and self-reliance. Individualism puts the focus on doing whatever it is what's best for me. I'm going to do me and you're going to do you. 
And this is not the value, habit, or practice of a gospel-centered church. I wonder how many of some of our, the issues in our world and in the church could be solved if we just ate a meal together and just talked through some things. What, 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 what if Christians who are white and black just got said, hey, let's have a meal together. Let's have lunch together. And let's talk and hash this thing out. Help me to understand. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the gospel, in a multi-ethnic church, this is where we got to get to, y'all where white folks and black folks are at the table together. We're inviting each other into our lives and homes, and we're learning about one another, and we can stop lift, uh, thinking about people based on stereotypes and what the TV and, and, and media portrays people to be like. Yeah, yeah. And you can say, oh, this is what... Oh, okay. There was fellowship. But I also believe... That in this sharing of meals together, there's a particular thing that happened when they broke bread together. In the midst of this table fellowship, I, I, I'm convinced that they had a special meal where they remembered the death of Christ together. Gospel-driven Churches are churches that obey the Lord's commands to remember two, two, two ordinances, two things that the Lord has ordained, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And notice that this, this breaking of bread together, this Lord's Supper, was done with some regularity because it says they did it day by day. And now folks look at me like, why we do Lord's Supper every week? Now, this is not, we don't, now let me make something very, very clear here. The scripture gives us freedom when it talks about the regularity of the Lord's Supper. I grew up, we did it the first Sunday. First Sunday, and where I came from, you knew it was Lord's Supper because them deaconesses were dressed in white. <laughs> y'all know what I'm talking about, okay, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. They had on their white, and where I came from, where I came from, when it was time to serve the Lord's Supper, the deacons put on white gloves. And you knew, you knew it was, and, and listen, you knew it was time for the Lord's Supper because the, the Lord's Supper table was, 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 had a white cloth over it. And where I'm from, where I'm from, if you put your hand on that table, get your hand off that table. Because it was holy. And you knew, you knew, you knew it was time for the Lord's Supper. Because they would say, I know it was the blood. <laughs> Y'all excuse me, I'm feeling a little nostalgic this Sunday. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood for me. Don't y'all start. One day when I was lost, he died upon the cross. And I know it was the blood for me. He never said a mumbling word. 
Then somebody will say, wait, 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 wait. He's coming back again. He's coming back again. He's coming back again. He's coming back again for me. Let me see. Y'all, y'all think y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Down at the cross where my Savior died. Uh-huh. Down where from sin, from sin. Uh-huh. To my heart was the blood I'm singing glory to his name singing glory to his name his precious name I'm singing glory to his name, precious name, oh, there to my heart was the blood I'm singing glory to the blood that Jesus share for me and yeah way back all right glory that's do we need some help the blood that gives me strength from day from day to day, it will never, it will never lose. Hallelujah. It's power. Oh, it reaches. It reaches. Never, it will never 
highest. Thank you, Lord. Let's, let's partake. I'm so glad I never lose this power. 